Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. All right, listeners, we're back. It's a haunted history episode, and it's the top five, backed by popular demand. Right. The fans love the top five, and this is not just any top five, Phil. On the eve of Halloween, the top five most haunted historic locations in the United States. It's a haunted history episode, but we got one question for you. One question. Do you, the listener, believe in ghosts? Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast. Thank you again for taking time out of your Saturday and joining us here with a new episode of our podcast. This is really, Phil, wrapping up three weeks uh, of storytelling centered around Halloween. We started this back on the 16th with with, uh, Is It a Trick or a Treat? The Making of a Ghost Story followed up on the 23rd, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And here we are, like you said in the intro, the fans love our top fives. And we love doing them, really. It's fun for us. And haunted historic locations. It was tough to kind of narrow down and whittle our our way down to top five, but we did it. We had the coffee brewing. And really, you know, what time of year lends itself better to telling stories and listening to stories than Halloween? That's a great point. And now, of course, if you want to have a great story, you got to have a great cup of coffee. The coffee we're brewing today fits right into this theme. It's the uh, holiday edition of Utica Roasting Company uh, Coffee called the Headless Horseman. Perfect. We even added a little maple to give it a little zing at the end. Mm-hmm. So, hey, I'm really excited to do this top five. And I got to tell you, one of the most popular episodes we've ever had was the top five war movies. And the reason why, I think, is because it it, it really captures a lot of people's uh, imaginations, opinions, that kind of thing. I don't think we've gotten more emails right. uh, about any other episode than those top five. So we're excited, as Phil said, and uh, we're going to get right into it. Top five in no particular order. <laughs> Okay, Phil. So in typical Missing Chapter fashion, we've not shared our lists, although we, just to, to let everyone know, our top choice is something that you and I an experience in a place that we've both um, have a connection to and, yes. and an experience personally with. Right. So you're going to share two of your top five locations. I'm going to share my two, and then we'll share our top location jointly. At the end. Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and get us started? I'm interested right. to see where you're taking us first. So out of all the places in the United States, this is actually one of them, as I'm doing more and more research, that I was actually most shocked about. Uh, I would never think Chicago would be one of the most spooky spots in, in the United States. I never really anticipated in seeing that of all the areas around the world that you could uh, consider, um, specifically in the United States. I, Chicago, I don't even know, would be in my top five. Mm. However, it is considered one of the most haunted cities not just in the United States, but in the world. First ghost stories come from the Battle of Fort Dearborn. Then, of course, we have the Great Chicago Fire. Um, and then for those of you that don't know, I might even do a, a follow-up uh, episode. You might have remembered the Mississippi Mishap episode we did. This is very similar. There's a, a disaster called the Eastland Disaster. It was a boat that that overturned in Chicago uh, on the Chicago River on July 24th, 1915, drowning between 800 and 850 of its passengers. And they were headed to a picnic it was caused by serious problems with the boat's design, very similar to the Mississippi mishap, um, which were known about but never really remedied and caused this horrific disaster. 
on top of that, we have on downtown on South Michigan Avenue, the old Congress Plaza Hotel. A lot of people in the area are pretty familiar, actually, with the stories of this this woman, this ghost, um, Resurrection Mary, they call her. Mm. She's a hitchhiking ghost. It's been seen all along Archer Avenue. It's kind of like a local, um, just like a local resident to people. They see her so often. The James Adams Hall House, another very haunted location uh, where, you know, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which was the 1929 murder of seven members and associates of Chicago's North Side Gang, incurred on, of course, Valentine's Day. Uh, the men were gathered at Lincoln Park Garage in the morning of that feast day. And sure enough, we know the end of that story. But everybody believes that those mobsters are actually still haunting that location. Um, the statue, Ulysses S. Grant. Let's talk about that for a second. You could pretty much see it anywhere from, from Lincoln Park or uh, off the Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. The reason why this area is considered to be so haunted is this was actually struck by lightning in 1892. 11 people died. Wow. And there's a lot of stories that, you know, those 11 people are still haunting that area. How about this one? There's a museum itself in Lincoln Park. It's rumored to be haunted, too. And you actually take haunted history tours, which I would love to do at some point. It actually, ready, used to be a graveyard. And, of course, there's legends that when you disrupt the body from its burial state, you upset the spirit of the people who have passed. And this is, of course, haunted land. So many people have talked about these ghosts, spooky apparitions, stories, sightings, and interacting, just walking around the park. Mm -hmm. um, in the museum itself, there's a lot of history around that. So where Lincoln Park sits now, the park itself, uh, and the zoo, this land was the original city cemetery for Chicago. We're talking 35,000 people here. Wait, that's where the zoo is now? Haunted land. Yeah, so where where the Lincoln Park is right now and the zoo was the original city cemetery. Now, they had planned on moving some of the bodies because if you look at uh, Google Earth, you'll notice it's very, very close to Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. And they didn't think it was the proper spot. So they were going to start moving the bodies until October 8th, 1871, the night of the Great Chicago Fire. Wow. It interrupted the entire process, and now we have not only spooky ghost stories, we have people of unknown cemetery plots. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden is now dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. So, Phil, this kind of dark, disturbing nursery rhyme uh, was the result of a double homicide, which young Lizzie Borden, which I'm sure some of our listeners are, are familiar with, mm -hmm. was accused of in 1892 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Now, Fall River is about 50 miles, just a little over 50 miles south of Boston. Okay. Uh, it's actually right near the Rhode Island border. Both her father and stepmother had been brutally attacked inside their home with a hatchet, which if you see the pictures, we can post these on social media. It's almost, uh, almost an ax because the handle's quite long, but both her father and her stepmother obviously succumbed to their injuries. It was pretty grisly. The murders and trial received widespread publicity, national publicity, and remained a household name to this day. They've been depicted in numerous theatrical productions, films, literary works, yeah. and of course the full crimes, like the one that I just repeated. Um, but the this the brutality of this crime, and I think how young Lizzie was, and the fact that she was a female, kind of contributed to the attention they got. 
Um, shortly after Lizzie's mother's death, three years actually, her father Andrew remarried, and Abby Gray became her stepmother. And Lizzie kind of a, tried to to have a cordial relationship. Uh, it sounds. But, you know, the fact that she continued to call her Mrs. Borden instead of mom, I think, gives you an idea of of where they stood and what their relationship was like. But um, to give you some background to this before I get into the haunting of this, um, her father was very wealthy. Uh, His financial standing was was very good. His estate was valued at over three hundred thousand dollars, which in twenty twenty one was the equivalent to over nine million dollars. And detectives immediately honed in on Lizzie primarily because they thought that she was upset over the fact that this money was going to her stepmom as opposed to her and her uh, sister. And this is in the 1890s, right? 1890s, right. So $9 million in the 1890s. That's a Which hefty is sum a, of money. Which is a lot of money, right. So um, Andrew was kind of a, um, a very routine-oriented person. He went for an early morning walk. And during this time, um, Lizzie's stepmom, Abby, was doing some cleaning, some, you know, um, some work around the house. That's when she was killed. And when her father came back and discovered this, he was also murdered. And immediately, like I said, the brutality of this, people in this small Massachusetts town got caught up in this. And the fact that that Lizzie was the one who was the primary suspect, a lot of her, her story just didn't mesh with what the, um, the specifics of the crime were and and what the, um, the evidence showed. And even though she was acquitted in, in the public eye, she was guilty. Okay. So she was guilty. That's kind of the, the whole Lizzie Borden thing was, yes, she was found innocent, but boy, we really think she did. Yeah. I, so I just, I just Googled Lizzie Borden mm-hmm. while you were, while you were chatting. And I, I got to tell you, that was one of the most gruesome things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's something about, and I know, granted, this might just be the 1890s photography, She's got this crazy look in her eye. That, yeah. <laughs> tell you what. No, absolutely. Which, because you're looking at those pictures and, and the condition of the house yeah. after these two murders, listen to the second chapter of this, of this story. The home now, all right, in Massachusetts is now a fully functional bed and breakfast. Oh, come on. So you can stay at the Lizzie suite and sleep in the bed that Lizzie Borden slept in. No way. Wait, I, not a chance. Wait for it, Phil. Um, you can have breakfast on the table, the dining room table, uh, where Abby and Andrew, the father and the stepmother, were autopsied. Come on. You could not pay me enough money. Listen, I, I consider myself a fan of, of stories like this. And, you know, I like horror movies, things like that. But this, to me, is a little bit too far. But But from the sounds of it, people all over the country come to, to experience this. I can, I can see that being a very popular place. It's something for me, I would avoid that like the plague, but. So it's interesting because when we talk about hauntings, the reports of people who've stayed at the Lizzie Borden house, um, you have cat apparitions. She had a pet cat. Um, You have a self rocking chair. Um, But here's the one that kind of gets me because you think of like hauntings as those, those images or the cold feeling, you know, the, indescribable closing of doors. But this one's the, the, the one that stood out to me and why it made my list. The idea that Lizzie herself still haunts the home. And because the murders were conducted, a lot of them, we, we think of murders that were very personal, 
Right. Like the fact that she, th- these two victims had been hit so many times and in, in specifically in the face, very personal. But the idea here is that Lizzie still haunts the home choking guests that lay in her bed. People, oh. numerous descriptions of people waking up, having that feeling of not being able to catch their breath and almost like they've had something placed over their heads. So I'm yeah. uncomfortable just listening to this. I know. So guests who could say at the Lizzie Borden house, they've captured photos of just strange anomalies floating by their beds, noises coming from inside wardrobes, footsteps, laughter, things like that. It's right there. It's on the East coast. So if you're not familiar with this, maybe that you, maybe you're going to put that on your next list of place to travel. And you're going to let us know if you had any uh, examples of these you know, occurrences happening to you. I'll tell you what, when we go to a bed and breakfast, that will be the last place on my list. Mine too, Phil. <laughs> All right, Phil, I got a, I got a haunting story here that I think is going to uh, awaken some of our local listeners. Good choice of words. Thank you. I appreciate that. So what I think is, um, I think it's going to happen. I, I anticipate some emails on this, some comments on, on social media. And I'm really looking forward to it because this has been one of the things for for people outside of New York State, specifically Central New York. We have uh, an estate pretty local to us that is pretty much commonly known as like one of the most haunted places mm-hmm. uh, you could ever experience, and that, of course, for our listeners, is is Beardsley Manor. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I've grown up. Right around Beardsley Manor, I've I've heard stories um, from people who have worked there from. Uh, local residents, from family members, from all sorts of uh, people around our our connections. So, give you a little background story. Uh, Beardsley Manor uh, was built by a man by the name of Captain Beardsley. Um, his family lived there until his death in about 1939. Now, I'm just going to go right into some of the hauntings because this is something I actually remember growing up in elementary school. Uh, there was a local historian who was at the time was uh, in her 80s and 90s. And some of the things she she had talked about were, were chilling. And it, it it left a lasting memory. I, I don't know why they brought us in. You know, as fourth graders, they brought a local historian in to tell us ghost stories. But I think it was kind of cool at the time. I don't know if I would do that again uh, with someone that young because it had a lasting memory on me. But it's pretty interesting. So let's go right into it. These hauntings go back quite a few years. And I think the variety of hauntings is probably what's most intense. It wasn't until about 1983, uh, the owner at, at that point was named by the, uh, a guy by the name of Joe Casillo. He asked for a formal paranormal investigation be done in the manor. So there was a ghost hunting team that came in, captured a huge volume of, of strange voices on the recorder. They shared their findings with all the local media. And then soon uh, the world got attention about uh, you know this, this kind of paranormal activity here. But it was about six years later, the, man, the manor burned. Uh, in, in about 1989, and that was actually burned for the second time. There's a there's a burning uh, earlier in its in its conception too. The most primitive source of hauntings, though, here we go, is set to involve the usage of land before the actual castle was built. And at one time, a farmhouse stood on the land, and underneath the building of the property was a tunnel that housed a large amount of ammunition. Well, stories tell us that local Native Americans uh, found out about the secret stash, broke into the tunnel an attempt to take it back and confiscate it. But unfortunately, the underground stores of gunpowder ignited and this massive explosion killed the entire Indian outfit. Uh, but supposedly today, the tunnel entrance can actually be seen in the basement of the Beardsley Manor. I cannot 
deny or confirm that, but that's what some of my resources are telling me. Um, but that was that was probably the earliest, most primitive portion. But not all these ghost stories are associated with that Indian raiding party. Most of them involve phantoms of the Beardsley family. So Captain Beardsley, as I said, uh, had this home and it's just massive, sprawling estate. There was even a, um, a train station there for his family. It uh, a lot of the the family members because it was it meant so much to them were buried there in a mausoleum uh, that lies right on the property, and it's been rumored that you know the, the mausoleum especially has been a very very haunted place. It was desecrated in the '60s, and one of the coffins was removed and opened up and left outdoors even. And a Little Falls resident, which is um, a town fairly close to here, uh, and that's where the uh, the address falls for for Beardsley Manor. It's in between St. Johnsville and Little Falls. A Little Falls resident was later arrested because he found uh, he was in possession of a skull of one of the members of the Beardsley family. So you can imagine the hauntings of that. Are you serious? Well. Wait, oh, yeah. Had a skull? He had a skull of one of those, right, of those family members. So that has played a major role uh, in this paranormal activity at the, at the castle. Now, Many believe, and many people have confirmed, actually, that Captain Beardsley himself is actually the one haunting the castle and the grounds surrounding it. Many people are reporting of seeing uh, a ghost of a man wandering the grounds of Beardsley Manor, carrying a bright lantern. Uh, more on that story in a second. They say he's searching for his son, who died a, a horribly tragic death, having been hit by a train. More on that, too. Uh, the ghost lantern is so bright and so real that it has actually distracted motorists for decades, causing many car accidents along Route 5. Now, I can vividly remember as a child um, driving past Beardsley innumerable times mm -hmm. with, my, with my parents. And I always remember my dad saying, hey, when you get old enough, I want you to be careful around this corner because there's, a, there's train tracks right next to the road. And oddly enough, I can even vividly remember the train approaching as we were rounding the corner and the, the light of the train is incredibly bright, the nose of the train. So it, it would almost like your, your eyes gravitate towards light. Mm -hmm. So you'd almost gravitate towards light and then you realize, oh, there's a there's a, almost like a little blind corner here. And it's not drastic. It's not like a 90 degree hairpin turn, but it is, um, it's just enough where, where there have been hundreds of accidents. Now, the interesting part is some of my family members, some of our, our local residents have described this light as not just a, um, a bright light, but a disappearing one. Mm. So reports of old newspapers will say, you know, I got in this horrific car accident. I survived. But apparently there was no train that went by. Mm. Um, I saw this, this, this light on this train track. I thought it was a train. I come to find out there was no train that went by at all. There was no person. What is happening? How come I crashed? I, I promise you I saw this. So there's witnesses of this. And Phil, you know, and I don't want to jump in and take up Please. too much of this. It's, it's interesting, though, because I didn't know that you were going to do Beardsley Castle. And I know growing up, you were closer to Beardsley. I yep. was probably, I'd say, about 15, 20 minutes east of you as to where I grew up. But that right there, what you touched on, is the story that always resonated with me. Yeah. And what I had heard about Beardsley was the lantern. Yes. That's what people said. Well, if you're driving past Beardsley, that's what you want to be on the lookout for. Yeah. And it, it, now to the point where, you know, you've grown up with this and you've heard so many ghost stories about it. It's almost commonplace. Right. You oh, know, absolutely. When you, when you go by Beardsley, it's like, oh, I wonder if the lantern's out there. Right. It's and something I, so common. I know we've had uh, amongst our listeners, former students who've maybe had wedding receptions there, yeah. parties there. They worked there. Yep. I'd be interested to hear what, you know, incidences and, and um, 
occurrences they've had. Well, we recently just had my mother's uh, 70th birthday there. We had uh, my wife's uh, baby shower when, mm-hmm. we, when we had our, our first child, Jojo. Um, and we didn't experience those, but you're as you're there, you're kind of wondering mm-hmm. like, All right, what's going to happen. Right. But um, another reason why some of these hauntings can be associated with this this castle has to do with the fact that there was a suicide that occurred in the building. Oh, wow. too. Uh, former owner actually hung himself upstairs. Uh, he bought the building in the early 40s, opened a restaurant with his wife um, downstairs. And perhaps maybe the tension of running the business was too hard. No one really knows. But regardless, his ghost uh, has been seen by many employees roaming the corner um, about where he was when he killed himself. Uh, a woman named Abigail died in the manor, either by choking or during an uh, epileptic fit. One woman followed Abigail, this is crazy, into the ladies' room. But once she got to the ladies' room, she realized she was alone. She was shocked to know that uh, she was actually following a full ghostly apparition. Mm. Another time, a longtime employee would hear a woman softly call her name uh, when no one was around. Another employee saw a woman dressed in white walking up a non-existent staircase where uh, one had, had once been. But the question is, could that have been Abigail? Employees, guests alike have heard uh, voices of the dead all over the castle. Many have seen lights, some that float, shadows moving about after hours. Um, phantom footsteps that are associated with the souls that were lost at one point during, uh, you know, the, the time of the castle. Sometimes even a scream can be heard in the restaurant, disrupting people's meals. Um, and a number of ghosts are seen frequently in the building. Now, one of the one of the stories that I heard when I was younger uh, from this historian was was the drummer. So mm-hmm. one of the owners that was there previously uh, w- would leave. They would shut down everything, and he would be the last one to leave. And maybe there was a party downstairs in the basement where a lot of paranormal activity has, has taken place. He would leave and turn back around to look at the castle and, and the lights were on. So he'd go back in, turn the lights off and leave again. And as he would leave, guess what? The lights are back on. He would go back in and he, he frequently said, you know, there were times when uh, I would, I would go back in to turn the lights off and then I would hear drums. And he said, well, hello, is anyone here? He would go downstairs and there's the drum set. There's the drumsticks, but no one's playing. So those are those are very common uh, occurrences there. Um, dining tables properly set will be disarra- uh, disarranged uh, by unseen hands, glasses shattering for no reason, doors opening and closing, like you said in your last one, on their own. But after 28 years since the first investigation of Beardsley Castle, having been featured, by the way, on Ghost Hunters and Haunted History, it's it's a staple across central New York. And uh, it's kind of interesting that it's it's pretty close to home. Okay, Phil, my next one is another um, kind of hotel. I started off with a, with a house that eventually became a bed and breakfast, but I'm going to start you with a quote, and I'm going to hold off on telling you who gave the quote until a little bit later on, but I think this kind of sets the scene pretty well for my next one. Here's the quote. Any big hotels have got scandals, hmm. just like every big hotel has got a ghost. Why? Hell, people come and go. Sometimes one of them will pop off in his room, heart attack or stroke or something like that. Hotels are superstitious places. All right. So I'm going to set the scene with that. I'm going to come back to it and you'll see why. Okay. And I'm going to introduce the name Freeland Oscar Stanley, who was an American inventor, uh, architect, entrepreneur, Um, school children um, in in the early 1900s, late 1800s, used the Stanley practical drawing set. Photographers used photographic plates. 
uh, which Stanley produced in his factories. And between these two things, he was a multimillionaire relatively quickly. Um, he and his twin brother also created the Stanley Motor Carriage Company, which became the Stanley Steamer oh, for wow. locomotives, right? Really at the height of railroads and the industrial period of the United States. All right. So in 1903, um, Freeland Oscar Stanley was actually given less than six months to live due to tuber uh, tuberculosis. Okay. And his doctor recommended that he get fresh, dry air, lots of sunlight, and really a healthy diet, not to really prolong his life, but to make the last portion of his life as enjoyable and as comfortable as possible. So Stanley and his wife head for the Rocky Mountains. They head for the Rocky Mountains with this diagnosis. Wasn't an easy trek. They were traveling from Massachusetts. Um, his doctor promised to come in September, all right, um, to bring Stanley's body back for burial. Okay. So it was about six months. However, within just a couple of months, two things had really happened. Stanley was hiking five miles a day, was nowhere near death's door. Was, I mean, his health was improving amazingly, like fast so and drastically. Was, so what was used as kind of a way to improve his life actually maybe helped him? Absolutely. Okay. It, 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 may, it totally redefined who he was physically. Reinvigorated, right? Reinvigorated, okay. and the other thing is he is falling in love with this area of the of the country. Okay, to the point where he and his wife, you know, he's healthy now. They're loving the outdoors. They decide to move permanently in 1907 from Massachusetts uh, to Colorado. Okay, um, yeah. Within four years of of moving and going to um, Colorado, he was completely recovered. He was in the best shape of his life. That's incredible. And a side note, Phil. I mean, I'm kind of jumping around here, but. He would actually live to be 91 years old. Wow. Yeah. So he and his wife moved to Colorado permanently. The one thing that they weren't in love with, um, they loved the environment. They loved the healthy lifestyle. They didn't like the rugged lifestyle. Hmm. It was a little bit too rustic for them. So in 1907, he was determined to turn where he was, Estes Park, into a resort town. And he began by constructing what became a very famous and is today the, the Hotel Stanley. Let's start with a hotel, a place where, where travelers and tourists can come. If this entire town is going to be a resort, they need the hotel first. So yep. that's what he decides to create, the Hotel Stanley. He even built a uh, hydroelectric plant in the mountains so as the hotel could, could be all electric. He had phones in every room. Something that they left out that would later on kind of come back to, to hurt um, the hotel and its, um, its prosperity was heat and AC. Okay. Because it was really a seasonal sense. hotel yeah. at this point. Yeah. And they didn't need those things. But as it becomes a year-round destination, they would have to put those in. But guests would arrive by train. They'd be ushered into the hotel by a fleet of you know, specially designed steam-powered vehicles called mountain wagons based on his technology. The Stanley was a summer resort. Um, heat would uh, eventually be added in, uh, in 1979. Okay. But by the 1970s, the Stanley Hotel was starting to experience kind of a downward spiral. It wasn't as popular as it was, you know, decades earlier. And there's a, a turning point that's really crucial to this story. It seemed almost like the Stanley Hotel was going to be destroyed. By 1974, Stanley... The Stanley Hotel was almost at a point where if it doesn't start to show improvement financially, it's going to have to be torn down, maybe redesigned by new owners. There's a fateful night where a, a very young author and his wife 
this this author is also experiencing some issues, um, some um, coming up with new ideas. Okay. Decides to take a break from his writing. Little writer's block. Absolutely. Okay. He and his wife Tabitha, uh, who are living uh, in Boulder for a short time, um, decide to take a night, relax, clear his mind. They're going to spend a night in the Stanley Hotel. This author turns out to be none other than Stephen King. Come on. And Stephen King and his wife spend a night in the Stanley Hotel, during which King admits a lot of crazy things happen. He has visions of ghosts, noises all through the night. Um, he's, he's convinced when he wakes up the next morning um, that the place is haunted. And he's okay with it. Because the writer's block is gone. Wow. And he begins writing what will eventually be The Shining. And it revitalizes, you know, his career. And it certainly revitalizes the Stanley Hotel. In fact, the quote that I gave you at the beginning of this was an excerpt uh, from Stephen King's The Shining, which was eventually published in nineteen this is in the insane. 1970s. So it's... This has become really iconic from the movie and the book. It's iconic in it's really pop culture. Yeah. I mean, The Shining, and it's based around the Stanley Hotel, which from there, because of its popularity both in film and in in, in the book form, um, you know, the Stanley Hotel, the rest is history, as you as you would say, it takes off See, and it becomes much more popular. This is this is awesome because this is this is in pure missing chapter fashion. Mm -hmm. I had no idea you're about to say Stephen King. I was really curious too, because I mean, Halloween stories usually have a trajectory downward. You know what I mean? And this one was kind of revitalizing. He was coming back to life. So I was, I was curious of where this was headed. And all of a sudden you pull Stephen King. I had no idea that that was based on the Stanley and Hotel. And get this, Phil. So because of its re remote location, the Stanley Hotel's remote location, it's, it's huge size. It's eerie kind of desolation. King w would later in an interview describe how his imagination was running wild. And this was one of his quotes. It was like God had put me there to hear that and see these things. I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat in a chair through, looking out the window at the Rockies. And by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of the shining firmly set in my mind. Oh my God. Now, if you were to visit the Stanley Hotel today, it's been referred to uh, by historians and ghost hunters as the Disneyland for ghosts. It's been, you know, hosted, it's, it's hosted countless paranormal investigations. Um, you're talking about eerie laughter, shadowy figures, the flickering of lights. It's really become a favorite to people who, who uh, enjoyed this phenomenon. And it's, I mean, if you were to look at it, it's very spooky. This, I mean, this could be, this looks like you're absolutely, here, so. absolutely. And it's just, it's fun with the background. It's fun that it's connected to the King of, of ghost stories and, and horror films. And that the majority of us grew up with uh, enjoying wow. and really the setting for arguably one of Stephen King's most popular novels. Okay, now that we're back from our commercial break, let's hit this top one, Phil. This is a, a pretty special place for us. Mm -hmm. uh, Gettysburg. 
Now, one of the first years that I started teaching with you here at Kennedy Harry, um, we took a, a, our history club uh, to Gettysburg, and it was one of the one of the best trips I think I've ever experienced, even outside of school. Um, and just to remind everybody, I mean, listen, when the cannon smoke cleared, you're talking five thousand horses, you're talking fifty thousand men laying dead or dying. Um, Confederate soldiers never receiving proper burials. Now, 14 decades later, there's some st still some unsettled spirits here, Phil. Yeah, and you know, Phil, anytime we do a top five, we encourage people to email, to reach out to us on social media and kind of debate, assess, critique how we did. And, and you certainly, I think, will be able to do that with the four that we started the show off with. I think it's going to be tough to debate our number one being Gettysburg. Yeah. Um, Gettysburg, like you said, because of the number of people who died over those three days, the manner in which they died, the suffering, the lack of proper burials. I mean, the descriptions of Gettysburg in the days and the weeks and the months after just paint a picture of just how grisly and gruesome yeah. this was. So I think that lends itself to why you would have a lot of these, these ghosts, these spirits, these apparitions, you know, a, a lot of suffering and a lot of unfinished business maybe That's for, for these young men. And it, it's, it's one thing to read it online and on a website, but it's a, it's a completely different experience when you physically are there to see some of the gruesomeness of, of war, of battle specifically of this, of this area and, and how things transcended so quickly and how a lot of these places were, were turned into makeshift hospitals. Yeah. So you yeah. would, you would walk down the street of Gettysburg present day and never realize that, uh, a house to your left, a, a hotel to your right, or just a, a random place in the middle of the of the city, is was turned into a makeshift hospital where, where people were were getting amputations with no with with no pain remedies or anything like right. that at all. It, yeah. It's it's astounding once you're there. Yeah, there's a feeling to the town. I mean, That's you hear that yeah. you hear different places described. If you've never been there, you know, as soon as I we got to Gettysburg, there was a, a definite feeling, which is difficult to kind of explain until you've actually. You know, kind of experienced it for yourself. But if you've never been there, some of the places um, that are really known for having these these hauntings, um, the Jenny Wade House. Jenny Wade yeah. was the the only known civilian resident of Gettysburg, un you know, not military related casualty of the war. And um, a, as the the story goes, Jenny Wade was was making bread, um, and at the time that that uh, a stray bullet passed through her house and killed her. And the story is when you pass by the Jenny Wade house, very often you'll smell that aroma of baking bread. Now, Phil, Go you ahead, and Phil. I, I know you and I were, were on separate tours. Yes. Separate tours. Not having been privy to that story. Either. Right. Right. So walking up to that house where that civilian mm -hmm. lay dead from that stray bullet, I got chills because as the tour guide is telling the story, what, in fact, did I smell? And uh, probably a handful of other students. I had about 10 or 12 students with me. They all smelled bread. They did. And like I said, we didn't know the story. And we I didn't and, see you earlier. We, right. We, we didn't tell you. We had taken a large group. To give you some background, we had taken a large group, a part of the history club, the district history club that Phil and I created. We took them on, on I believe it was like a three-day trip yeah. um, in the spring, yep. late spring to Gettysburg. About 10 years ago. Or about so. 10 years ago. And, and we were there for a number of nights, a number of days. And when we did take one of our, our nighttime hauntings tour, we were such a large group that they, in fact, split us up. Yeah. So you were with one group of kids. I was with another. 
And even though we went to similar locations and same in pretty much the same locations, our experiences were separate from one another. And then when we reconvened and got back together and shared some of our experiences, we were astounded to realize, wait a minute. Yeah. We kind of experienced the same thing, but that was something unique to your group that I remember you specifically and it was, touching on. That and it was, was amazing too, because as we were walking towards the house, Mm-hmm. The tour guide had not mentioned that to us. Right. And and there was like three or four of us like, oh, oh, my gosh, we're so hungry. Do you smell that? I'm like, yeah, man. Oh, my gosh. That's that's a big breath. And then he mentions it. Come I on. I know. it. I know. And we had actually had um, dinner with the with the students one night at the Cash Town Inn, um, which is just a, a few miles um, or, or a few uh, kind of on the outskirt of town. It's where the first soldier was killed during the Gettysburg campaign. Um, the owners there have a long history of strange orbs, um, almost skeletal, yeah. uh, images showing up on pictures and photos that people have taken, uh, over the years. Um, they've certainly experienced their, their fair share of doors shutting inexplicably, mm-hmm. um, witnessing lights turning on and off, uh, doors locking and unlocking themselves. So the cash town in, if you visit Gettysburg, that would be someplace that you'd want to, uh, to visit. And how about, how about the area where you and I both and, and your wife, mm-hmm. uh, we, we experienced something personal, mm-hmm. which I didn't think anyone else would ever believe until we shared the story, like you said earlier. Right. And what we have to, we have to realize is Gettysburg, it's so unique. And I think that the feeling that you said that you mentioned at the beginning uh, of this segment here is almost reminiscent to the feeling I got when I visited ground zero for the first time after 9-11 that's a great you know not that there was like hauntings or anything but it was just this solemn Mm -hmm. respected honorable sacred ground and i think that's the way i could describe gettysburg and the feeling that that's there but there's certain pieces of of history like for example the the area where where your wife took some pictures and i took some pictures was turned into a makeshift hospital now give everybody some background some of the the uh, the bullets that were used, and I have an actual um, a Union bullet, were larger than 50 caliber. So even modern day science and medicine, the best doctors on the planet, if you get hit with a 50 caliber bullet, the only thing they could do is amp- amputate. That's the only remedy. So you have all these makeshift hospitals, you know, where, where amputations are taking place. And what are they doing with the, the uh, amputated limbs? throwing them out the window and they're piling up. And we learned on, on one of the tours that it is actually Gettysburg became the vulture capital right. of the right. world because of that. So you can only imagine with all that, that suffering and, and, and I mean, just horrible tragedy that some of these things might occur post death. Right. right. So let's talk about the the story that, that your wife and I are, still have a connection with today. Okay. And it, it centers around the high street or common school, which we will be putting and posting pictures on social media and on our website, the missing chapter podcast.com. So you can see exactly what Phil and I are about to describe to you, but the high street or common school is a very kind of basic structure. It's brick. It's rectangular in shape. The facade that, that faces the sidewalk and the road has two stories two stories with four windows each. So there are eight windows altogether. And like I said earlier, Phil was on one tour. Uh, my wife and I were on another tour. And Phil, if, if I'm remembering right, it was dark 
and there was a driving rain yes. the, the night that we took these tours. We stopped in our group and our tour guide described to us exactly what you just said, that this school was one of many makeshift hospitals. But the stories of the suffering in this one kind of sets it apart from some of the other ones and, and yeah. the piles of limbs yeah. uh, that, 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 you know, made up the, the front lawn after in the days following the war. And they said this, this was one of the areas that really people have, have seen apparitions. Mm -hmm. So we just took pictures. It was dark. It was raining. We took pictures more to commemorate and to remember that building and the story that we were told rather than, I hope we get something. I hope we see an apparition like people yeah. have done in the past. But lo and behold, when we got back to our hotel or on the bus ride back to the hotel and my wife, Erin, was going through her pictures, there was something very obvious that stood out with the common school. Yes. And from my perspective, this is, I mean, you can't help but look at this picture and say, yes, there's something there. Right. And we've shown kids in, in class and the kids are very skeptical as, mm -hmm. as they probably should be wait a minute, is there some sort of a, a statue inside? Is there a display mm -hmm. that the the flash was picking up on? And the answers to all of that are no. Everything was pitch black. And with, with modern Photoshop, right. we can promise you these are not doctored. No, no. Uh, it almost looks like in the picture that I took, it almost looks like, you know, there's, there's someone physically standing mm -hmm. in the window right. uh, dressed as a Union or Confederate soldier. And, and I can promise you when I was taking the pictures now, now quick reminder, 10 years ago, you do not have the megapixel cameras like, like we have mm -hmm. the, the huge megapixel That's a great cameras. Point. So I was actually carrying a digital camera with me to take pictures. And I had the digital camera above my head because I don't know if you remember a student of ours that was with us who dressed like Abe Lincoln uh, <laughs> was about six, seven and a half, six, eight. And he was standing in front of me. So I, I'm six, six myself. But I wanted to get some pictures. And oddly enough, as the tour guide is describing this building, he said, you know, I've had tours uh, with this building and they've emailed me pictures after they've gotten away from the tour. Once they've gotten back to their hotel or maybe even a, uh, a couple days after the tour itself. And they've looked through their pictures and they, they see things. So I got my digital camera. I wasn't planning on because it was raining, like you said. Right. So I grabbed my camera. I put it above my head and I'm not looking through the camera. So I'm looking directly at the building. And God is my witness, there was nothing in the windows. But once I got back to the hotel and I start scrolling through my pictures on my digital camera, there was a shriek. I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, I couldn't believe what happened. And then you confirmed the same thing from the same building in a different window. Philip, though. It, it was within 10 minutes of us going through and noticing our picture in the common school. 10 minutes tops. Yeah. That we got a text from you saying you have to see the picture I got of the common school. So the irony here was it was perfect. Different window, like you said. Yes. But in both cases, I mean, you can see details, hats, um, straps going from, you know, from shoulder to side. Like, um, a, lapel. like, almost like, a, like a lapel or yep. like, you know, they have like a satchel on. It's it's very um, for me who I enjoy learning about this stuff. I think it's it's a great element to history. And, and deep down, I believe in it. This to me was proof. Yeah. As much proof as I've seen on a lot of the TV shows. Yeah. Okay. And the, the fact that you and I experienced it separately um, only kind of, I mean, gave some validity to it. Right. But we're going to post these. We want to yeah. get your feedback 
and and see if you guys see the same things that we do. Okay, so we'll make sure that these uh, get posted on on social media and on our website. And we certainly like all of our episodes, especially our top five, invite the feedback, invite the discussion. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of the Missing Chapter podcast. Have a great weekend. Be safe and keep listening. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.